Jesus, we do ask, it's a hard passage of scripture, and we ask that you would please uh, teach us from it and show, it how, show us how it applies to our lives. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are doing a sermon series called That's in the Bible, where we are looking at some of the strange and difficult passages of scripture, and I think the hardest one in the whole Bible is the one that Dana just read, where God commands King Saul to go completely wipe out a group of people called the Amalekites, to kill all of them, their, even their sheep and their cows and their donkeys. I mean, what did the donkeys do wrong, right? And we plan these sermons about six weeks out, and sometimes I'll pick a passage and I'll think, yeah, this will be a good one to preach on, until I get to that week. And then I think, what was I thinking? So that was this week, all week long. I was like, what was I thinking? But someone said to me earlier that, you know, said, take comfort in this. Not many preachers can stand up and say, nobody else in the world is preaching on this text today. So I've got that covered. Now, just before I I dive in, I just want to give one caveat. This passage raises lots of questions, and I cannot answer. I will not be able to answer all of them. But in some ways, I think maybe that's good. Because a God that we completely understand is, by definition, a God that we made up. And part of faith is to not understand and ask questions. And as long as we ask them of Jesus, our faith can grow. So, now that I have sufficiently lowered the bar so that I'll be able to clear it, Let me start. All right. In the last 50 years or so, preachers have not preached on texts like this, mostly because they have been badly misused in the past. You know, for for instance, preachers have used texts like this to scare people into being good by conjuring images of a wrathful God of vengeance. When I, in my former church, the junior high director one time took his kids to a summer camp, and one night during the campfire, the speaker digressed from his notes and said, you know what? This fire is hot. But it's not as hot as hell, which is where your friends are going because you haven't converted them yet. That's why preachers should always stick to their notes, right? (laughs) On top of that, texts like the one we just read have been used over and over again to justify everything from crusades to various imperialistic wars. But I don't think that passages like this rightly understood lead to human militarism or vengeance. Um, So before we all take that as a call to war and go trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, let's just kind of look at this passage a bit more. Because I believe that the fact that God is a warrior, a loving warrior, but a warrior all the same, is good news. And if we lose the warrior character of God, we lose a lot. So what I want to do is something a little different than I normally do. First, let me just give some theological comments to kind of help us understand, make sense of God commanding war. And then after I've done that, I want to talk about how having a warrior God who will fight all the things that are aimed against us is good news that can help us in our life at school or at work or health issues or financial problems or whatever it is. But first, some theological comments to understand this. Okay, first, the passages you need to know, the passages in the Old Testament where God commands wars are very, very rare. Doesn't do it a lot. And there are no wars commanded in the New Testament. There are far more texts, even in the Old Testament, that emphasize God's love and mercy. Like Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. If you were to read the Bible cover to cover, you would walk away with the impression that God is a God of love and mercy, not a God of anger and war. Even in the Old Testament. And that's important because, you know, sometimes we have this idea that, you know, the Old Testament God is angry and wrathful and God of war, but then he got nice in the New Testament. 
You know, the, the Old Testament was sort of his grouchy years. He was having a bad millennium. Give him a break. No, the, both Old and New Testaments both emphasize God's love. Second comment. Unlike acts of human violence, on the rare occasions that God commands war, it's always to stop a greater evil, and it's not supposed to be about human conquest or profit. So let's be clear. The Amalekites in this story were not Boy Scouts. All right, they'd attacked Israel before. They'd attacked other nations. They burned their children in fires as an offering to their god, Molech. They had a policy of genocide wherever they went. They'd pray always on the weak and the defenseless, and God protects the weak and the defenseless. And this was the case for all of Israel's neighbors, all around them. You know, the, the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and otherites. You know, they all had a morality that would make the Nazis blush. They just didn't have that technology to do as much damage. And the Bible is clear that God had been working with these nations for centuries trying to turn them around. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham that neither he nor his descendants can inherit the promised land yet, but that in the fourth generation your descendants will come back for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, God was working with these countries for centuries to turn them around, but they weren't paying any attention. So in order to put an end to gross injustice, God reluctantly and rarely commands war. But, and here's the point, here's the point. It is not supposed to be about conquest or profit. It's supposed to be about justice. That's why God says even kill all the animals because the animals represented the wealth of the country and nobody was supposed to profit from this war. And Saul's sin is that he keeps the best animals, he kills all the lousy ones, but he keeps the best animals for himself so that he profits by it which makes him just as bad as the Amalekites, right? He's using war and violence not as a last resort to stop further evil, but for profit, for gain. So when the prophet Samuel confronts Saul about it, Saul tries to backpedal, right? And you can see that in the conversation. You know, he tries to backpedal. What? No, really, I did everything the Lord said. Almost everything. So then Samuel sarcastically says, really? Well, then what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? I just love snarky prophets, right? I just love the... Level of snark in the Bible. Anyway, so then Saul says, oh, no, no, the soldiers took it. The, not me, the soldiers. And they did it to sacrifice to God. Yeah, 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 that's it. It was meant to be a sacrifice to God. No, it was all about getting profit. This is one reason I think that this passage serves more as a caution against war than a justification for it. Because when people go to war, you know, they always say it's about justice, but it never really is. Well, occasionally, but rarely. Right? It's really about conquest and profit. Very few wars, some are, but very few wars are actually about justice because the line between justice and justification is very thin. And like Saul, we are masters at self-deception. In fact, I think the challenge this story puts to us is in our own lives. What are the ways we use power and intimidation to get what we want? Now, just kind of a digression, some of you may be thinking, okay, if this war was to stop a greater evil, well, then why did even the kids have to die? I don't have a great answer for that. I know some folks speculate that maybe God took those children to heaven, and that maybe was better than living in a culture of death where they might have been a, a, a pagan sacrifice anyway. And that's comforting to think of, and maybe it's true. I do know this. If they went to heaven, it's not because they were children. It's because of God applying the work of Jesus on the cross retrospectively to forgive them. Other commentators point out that God knows that unless the entire culture is wiped out, it'll just come back to cause problems later, which, in fact, it did. 
If you fast forward centuries later to the book of Esther, there's a man named Haman who launches a genocide against the Jews. And Haman is an Agagite, which is probably a descendant of King Agag who Saul spares in this story. In other words, Saul's refusal to kill everyone allowed that culture to continue and eventually come back to launch a genocide against Israel. The point being this, God rarely and reluctantly commands war in the Old Testament to stop a greater evil. Okay, two more theological comments, and then I'll move on. Third, when it comes to the whole war thing in the Old Testament, you've got to recognize this, that God was using in the Old Testament a nation-state to get his will done, but that Jesus changed all that, and now God doesn't do that anymore. He works instead through a group of people called the church, which exists in every nation. And then finally, even in war, God always provided a way out for the folks who would turn to him, even on the other side. So in the war against Jericho, for instance, the prostitute Rahab was spared because of how she responded to God. In this story, a group of people called the Kenites are spared because of how they responded to God. Okay, so those are just a few kind of theological comments to kind of help us understand context for what about God commanding war. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but as I said at the beginning, maybe that's good. One of our interns in the youth department named Josh Gritter has been helping me this year by writing theological reflections on the passages that I'm preaching from. And this week, he encouraged me not to answer every question. And he said something I agree with. He said, I fear that the fewer questions we have of God, the smaller our God becomes and the smaller this grand narrative is. And I agree with that. If we can answer every question about God, we shrink him down to something we can understand. And here's where I want to leave behind the theology and turn instead to, okay, how does this passage apply to me today? How does this passage apply to my life? How is it good news for the problems I face and all of that? You know, how does this passage apply to me now? Because frankly, I don't really have a holy war scheduled for this week. So how does it apply? Here's how. If we lose the fact that God is a God of justice who hates sin because of the damage it does, if we lose the fact that God is a warrior, if we just make him some nice Santa Claus in the sky, you know, Mr. Rogers with a beard or whatever it is, we end up with a small, wimpy, ineffective God. And the thing about a warrior God is he's big. And if the battle is spiritual, which it is, a warrior God who wants the best for us, who fights evil for us, is good news because it means Jesus' purpose in your life cannot be stopped by anything. A few weeks ago, I picked up my eight-year-old daughter from our midweek Sunday school group, and I asked her, well, you know, how was it? What'd you do? And she said, oh, we played some games, and they were fun, and then we ate, and then there was some other stuff, and, and, and then more games, and they were fun. And I said, was that other stuff, the sermon? And she said, yeah, you know what you do, the boring part. <laughs> to a lot of folks, that is their image of Jesus, God, church, right? Boring sermons, bland people, milk toast, wimpy God. Uh -uh. God is holy. He is perfect love, which means he also is perfect justice. You know why? Because sin hurts people. You see, perfect love demands perfect justice. Do you want a nice God who just ignores sin and all the damage it does, says maybe to an unrepentant Adolf Hitler, oh, that's okay, no big deal, probably a childhood trauma that made him so grumpy, right? No, that's not a loving God. You know, it's interesting to me that two of the main objections against the existence of God contradict each other. How can a loving God allow so much evil? How can God judge evil people? Cancel each other out. 
God loves us so much, he is a warrior against sin and its destruction. And the place you see that best is at the cross. Martin Luther said, if you don't understand something theologically, flee to the cross. The cross explains everything. And at the, at, that's where we see God's love and God's justice coming together on the cross. His justice and wrath at sin coming down the vertical axis while his love is stretched out against the horizontal beam and where they meet in the center is the heart of Jesus. God is a warrior, but his ultimate battle, the war that ended all wars, wasn't the wars in the Old Testament, it's the cross, where God in the person of Jesus absorbs violence, absorbs death, absorbs our sin and conquers them, not through further violence, but by rising again three days later. In Jesus, God lets Satan throw his worst stuff at him, hatred, violence, war, even death, and none of that could stop him. And what happens when you can't kill someone? What happens when you can't kill someone? What happens when you have a movement where people are willing to die for it and the more you persecute it, the more it just spreads? How do you stop folks like that? And now the battle isn't about nations fighting nations and wars. No, no, that was a provisional concession God made for a while to establish Israel so that a bloodline that led to Jesus could occur. But Jesus now changes all of that. Now the battle is spiritual and the New Testament makes this very clear. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And the passage goes on to talk about how that armor is not worldly weapons. It's the sword of the spirit and the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And what all of this means is that in the words of Scripture, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And no weapon formed against us can remain. Jesus put it this way. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love this verse. One of my favorite verses. You know why? It shows us two things. The first, and this is important, the first thing it shows is that hell is a gated community. So just, that'll change your life. Okay? The second thing it shows is that, is that we are more than conquerors, that nothing aimed at us can defeat us. You know, we sometimes read this verse as though it means, you know, hell is assaulting us, the church, but somehow we'll just hang on. There's that wimpy God again. That is not what it says. Gates is a defensive image. The gates of hell are not assaulting the church. The church is assaulting the gates of hell. And they will not prevail. We are on the offensive and we are going to win. He is a warrior God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, not some tame house cat. And his purposes in your life cannot be stopped by anything the devil throws at you. It can't be stopped by health problems or school problems or friendship problems or financial problems. No weapon formed against you will remain because our warrior God is on the move. And I am not talking about nations fighting nations. And I'm not talking about fist fights. I'm talking about the spiritual battle that is so much more important because the weapons of this world, violence, hatred, death, have been absorbed by Jesus on the cross and proven to be paper tigers when Jesus rose from the dead. And with Jesus on our side, not even death can stop us because the great can't hold us because our warrior Lord has conquered it. When we were in Cambodia a few weeks ago, one of the people we met was a Canadian man named Kevin. And he told us his story. He said he used to make $120,000 a year running his own business, but then he got in the party scene and got addicted to alcohol and later on to heroin. Eventually ended up on the streets in Vancouver. Until one night he said he just felt this sense of darkness and spiritual darkness. And so he, he got on his knees and prayed, didn't know what else to do. And he said he felt the Holy Spirit rushing in and just giving him this sense of confidence and of peace. And he got this image in his mind of Jesus 
beaten up on the devil and the devil running away. So, warrior Jesus, right? Well, the next day, Kevin didn't drink or use any drugs, which, given his level of addiction, was an absolute miracle. And then the next day after that, he checked himself into a rehab center, got clean and sober, eventually started going to church, and eventually went to Cambodia on a short-term trip with his church. And I told you a couple of weeks ago how one of the things that happens in Cambodia is if a slum happens to be on a piece of land that the government or a company wants, the government moves in with bulldozers at 2 in the morning, no warning, and the, 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 the people in the slum don't even have time to get the few things they actually do have. Their shacks are bulldozed down. They're driven outside the city, dumped in the middle of nowhere. That's it. No compensation, nothing. And since their jobs were in the city, they lost those too. Well, Kevin was visiting a slum when this happened, and his heart was so broken over what he saw that he decided to stay in Cambodia and live with the villagers, and now he's helping them rebuild their village in their new location. And I asked him, as a Westerner, you know, isn't it hard to live in these conditions? No electricity, no shower. I mean, how do you do that? He said, easy. All those years on the street, I'm used to it. And he said, see, what the devil meant against me, Jesus used for good. Warrior Jesus, no weapon formed against me can remain. And one of the things you notice about Kevin is he does two, a lot of two different things. One is he smiles way too much. It's, it's actually kind of annoying. But the other thing he does a lot of is he cries, usually tears of joy. And he said this great thing. He said, you know, before my tears were all about me, my issues, my problems, my pain. Now they're about what I see Jesus doing. And when I want to know where Jesus is headed, I let my tears lead me. Kevin is no wimp. He is courageous. He is bold. Not a violent man, but courageous and bold. He is a, and he is a warrior against sin and injustice and brokenness and all the damage it does. But his weapons are not fists or guns. His weapons are love and courage and hope and compassion and bravery. All because Jesus is a warrior who fought for Kevin's soul to free him from addiction. And now Kevin is, and now, and now through Kevin, Jesus is bringing justice. As Kevin helps the villagers rebuild and as he advocates for the the villagers with the government because as a westerner he has power they don't have and he uses it for good jesus is a warrior on the march against the damage that satan wants to do in your life in my life in our world and what that means is we may face pain we may get discouraged we may face setbacks but jesus is on the move and his purposes cannot be stopped and that means that we do not have to sit around and be passive taking the devil's crap lying down we can fight back not with fists or guns but with the spiritual weapons Jesus gives us. When I was in ninth grade, the only thing we played in PE all year long was basketball, every single day. Right? And basketball wasn't exactly my sport. As the coach put it, he said, Scott, you're small, but you're also slow. <laughs> and as a consequence, the coach really didn't play me very much, and so I just kind of warmed the bench the whole time. So as Pastor John Ortberg puts it, that's when I learned that who gets to play was purely a political decision. I mean, the coach had his favorites, you know, they were the guys who were fast and strong and they could shoot and dribble and rebound. And for those purely arbitrary reasons, they got to play and become great athletes while I sat on the bench and developed character and became a pastor. <laughs> Here's my point. Stories like the one we read today where God commands war raise a lot of questions and they don't all get answered. 
But what they ultimately point to is that God loves us so much that he is a warrior out to stop the damage that sin does. And that means that we do not have to be passive bench warmers in life because he who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. And through Jesus, you are a warrior. But remember, the battle is spiritual. So before you go on your own private crusade against the neighbor because his dog ate your begonia or the friend you're mad at or the teacher that gave you a C plus or whatever, remember the battle is spiritual and so are the weapons, but the point is the same. Through Jesus, we are more than conquerors. And what that means is that you can fight. You can fight for your marriage against all the forces that are conspiring against it, including your own thoughts and temptations. You can fight for those who are outcasts, whether that's the poor and needy in our world or in our schools where people get labeled nerd or dork or geek or whatever it is. You can fight for the dignity of those people. You can fight for justice here and around the world by caring for someone in need or maybe going to our afternoon justice forums to find out how you can help. You can fight against poor health. Pray for healing, certainly, but also pray for that joy that transcends circumstances. Through Jesus, many people have found that joy even in the middle of ill health. Because of our warrior Lord Jesus, you do not have to take the arrows that the enemy hurls at you lying down. You can fight the good fight. Not your fight that you've decided is God's fight, but the truly, really good fight. And through Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. Because as Scripture makes perfectly crystal clear, the Lord our God is in our midst, a victorious warrior. He is mighty to save. You see, a warrior God who will stop at nothing to defend us, as it turns out, is nothing but good news. So Jesus, help us to understand this aspect of your character. Help us to follow you in the spiritual battles we face and know that the victory is assured through you. And Lord, then help us to give you all the glory for all the victory you bring. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.